Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Hey, how are you, Randy? I'm licking my wounds. <laughs> if I was a horse, they'd shoot me. <laughs> that bad, huh? It's a Monday. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. See, that's why I hang out with you. You're always great. Man, during, like elk, during elk season, it's hard for me to find a reason not to be great, but... Uh, give yourself 10 more years. <laughs> when you wake up and you didn't even know that you could have a, a, a big ache underneath your fingernail. I mean, I, I, I end up with aches in places that I didn't even know that you had nerves there to give me an ache. But. <laughs> and I know people are tired of me belly aching about getting old, but I'm going to be 56 here a month from today. Man, that, that does sound fairly old. <laughs> trust me if you saw me walking around the house this morning you'd think well i wonder if we could get sponsored by a wheelchair or walker <laughs> company we already know he needs hearing aids but uh <laughs> man they're gonna have to be making elk calls for denture fitments and yeah all sorts and, of stuff here soon i know and, and my wife and I were talking over the weekend. She's like, well, how many nights have you been in a tent this year? I said, 25 already. She said, well, how many you got to go? I said, 30 more. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'll go get you some, some ibuprofen here. Yeah, you aren't going to make it. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, and why you just... and, that's why you and your wife's dog hang out together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your wife actually, actually has the dog babysitting you. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So she's thinking we're both going to tip over about the same time. The dog's going to live for another 10 years, and I, prob- I probably won't. I'll, <laughs> I'll be up in Boot Hill before that dog ever dies. <laughs> so it's sitting right here on the floor looking at me like, you yep. talking about me? But it's, hey, it, it can't hear what you're saying, so it doesn't that's matter. That's true. Yeah, but I think it can read lips. <laughs> I better put my mask on, then it can't read go. my lips. <laughs> That's a downside, you know. And and this is all po- no politics here. Uh, whether you you're a masker, anti-masker, whatever, I don't really care. But uh, for people like me who have compromised hearing, if you want to realize how much lip reading you do as you get older, as your hearing starts to suffer. Try to communicate with people wearing masks. Yep. I I did not realize how much lip reading I do. But yeah, I do yeah, now. Drive through windows at grocery store checkouts. I'm always saying, what was that? Yep. Sorry, what was that? Yeah. I. So the good news is uh, a guy from the Mayo Clinic who does, he's a doctor of audiology. He wrote a a piece and he used me as an example. So I got a hold of him. I'm like, Hey, you want to talk to me about hearing loss and talk to my audience about hearing loss? He's like, yeah. So I'm going to have him come and talk about that kind of stuff someday. Wow. 
that. <laughs> you're definitely uh, you're going down the, the geriatric path here. I am. Your podcast guests are hearing devices and hearing loss yeah. and yeah. But you want to know what there is some there is some practical benefit about talking to doctors of audiology about your hearing loss is when they are there when they're talking about it make sure your wife is sitting right beside you so that that is proof this is not something you're making up yeah, this it's is not, it's not selective hearing not selective <laughs> hearing not at all so uh, the, the, so I'm just trying to you know throw a little bit of highlight you know a little bit of benefit in it here so yeah. but now speaking of uh, hearing loss and and audio stuff we're uh, we're leaving tomorrow morning for the Outfitters for Hope hunt, which you know we've it's been the the hunt of a lifetime hunt where we take a youth with life threatening illness out elk hunting. And a couple of years ago, we were out on that same hunt, and Ben Potter from Kana Outdoors was with us. Yeah. And it was it was actually the year that we filmed the linguist, and he brought a parabolic microphone with him. Which those are the great big ones you see at like the NFL games, where the yeah. person on the sideline has that great big half dome, and it points out there and just really directs all the audio right into the microphone. And he's he had his headphones on and he used it quite a bit that season, and he would say, "Oh, I just heard a bugle," and like I didn't hear anything. I don't think he did, and kind of wrote it off, you know, as maybe just a little bit of feedback or something in the in the uh, headphones and so one day we were sitting there and he said I just heard a heard a bugle I said let me see that so I put the headphones on and sat there and listened you could hear ravens like miles away and what was cool is when Whoa. somebody would bugle you could hear it echo and then echo and then echo and then echo like wow. for miles you could hear it and I said I want to test this and see how well it works and so I had Donnie walk down the hill with the with the mic and the headphones, and I stayed up on the hill. And I said, just go down 120, 150 yards and point it up at me. And I want to – you turn your back to me, and when you hear me talking, turn around. So Donnie got down there, back turned to me, and he has the headphones on. And I literally whispered as quietly as I could. I just said, can you hear me? And he turned around and said, I can hear you loud and clear. Wow. It's like 150 yards away. It's picking up the most quiet whisper. And I thought, man, I need one of those mounted on my backpack. So we just walk <laughs> around and we can hear elk bugle from, because I swear the elk this year had to have been just out of that audio threshold because I couldn't hear bugles most of them. Most of the season, it seemed like. Well, that's good to hear then because I was thinking it was my hearing. Maybe, really, it might have been. That, maybe it was just the elk weren't there. But I was in Wyoming mule deer hunting for 10 days, and the elk were screaming their heads off where even I could hear them. Man. So I, you, have, they, you have an elk tag for Wyoming, don't you? I do. But here's the problem. I allocated 12 days of hunting in Wyoming, and the deer hunt took 10 of them. I'm not real good at math, but it seems like you had a couple of days left in, in that allocation. Yeah. And we were 11 miles in where we saw the elk or heard the elk. And I did see six bulls. They were nice ones. So by the time we came out 11 miles, went to Idaho Falls, ran into Ben Potter at the Hilton Garden Inn. <laughs> Speaking to the guy. 
<laughs> ran into him at the Hilton Garden Inn. He's back in Idaho elk hunting this year. Uh, and then we went back to try to do two days of elk hunting. And I'm like, well, 11 miles in, that means day one is going in and day two is coming out. So why am I going in 11 miles? So I went in three or four miles and kind of got what you deserve when you go in three or four miles. Everybody else wanted to go in three or four miles. It was a pretty busy place. Really? And yeah. I, I had a general tag. Yep. And uh, I don't know how many people we saw, but I saw more people there than I normally see in Montana in the regular season. Man. Yeah. But that's, that's all right. crazy. Public land. The other part was the deer season is open at the same yeah. time. Most of those people I ran into were deer hunting. I was so. going to say, most of the time when I'm hunting in Wyoming on that general tag, if I get a half mile off the road, I really don't see anybody. And it's that half mile to three or four mile range where we seem to get into the elk because the rifle deer season's open. And it seems like the deer hunters are going up a little higher looking for those deer. Yeah. And I think the elk kind of get pushed down into the timber a little bit lower than than where you expect to find them. Well, that's what I thought. So. Here, here was my strategy, and you're going to laugh when you hear what my strategy was. So it's like, all right, I got two days. Residents can hunt the wilderness area, but non-residents can't. So I pull up to this trailhead, and I see all these Wyoming trucks with horse trailers. I'm like, all right, they're all up in the wilderness area. They're going to push the elk down out of the wilderness area. Sounds like a smart strategy, I thought. Yeah. Well, Marcus and I hike in there, and we're about a mile, mile and a half from the wilderness area. And, uh, it, I mean, it sounds like a war going on up there. I thought maybe the Russians were coming, and it was the movie Red Dawn or something. <laughs> and uh, from what I could see, they just pushed the elk further up into the wilderness area. The elk didn't gotcha. get the memo to come down. So, hmm. So me and all the other non-residents had the same strategy. Every non-resident I ran into was employing the same strategy. We we're all hunting right near the wilderness boundary. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll go right down at the trailhead by your truck oh, going, there you go. Man, Probably. for all these for all these vehicles, I would have thought there would have been a lot more pressure. But <laughs> carry on. Ruts yeah. on. Uh, but anyhow, it's it's the middle of elk season. If you want to call it that, September's over. Yeah. Can you believe September's over already? It was a weird September. I, I just, I mean, I didn't get excited this year. Like, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. September, September, and I love it. But we just, we struggled enough that I think there was more frustration and failure than there was elation and success. But... Yeah. yeah, I mean, we had we had plenty of opportunities, we had plenty of success, but you know, just between the fires and the smoke and plans getting changed and canceled and everything, mm -hmm. I felt like because weren't you guys supposed to go to Oregon, but they closed everything because of those big fires over there? Yeah, I don't want to completely let the cat out of the bag for destination elk, but oh, yeah, we didn't sorry. we didn't go to Oregon. No, you're good. That's 
we, uh, as badly as we wanted redemption on the Roosevelt Elk, the uh, the week we had scheduled to go there, they closed National Forest, State Forest, Timberland Company. There was one little section of BLM down in the southern part of the state that was open, and that was it along the coast. So. Wow. Huh. So as a result, you didn't get those crazy guys from Angry Angry Spike Productions on a podcast either, did I you? I did not. But mm. they they ended up going out the next week when things opened back up, and they uh, they had some success and hmm. good stuff. So we probably do need to chat with them and get the skinny on how the hunting was over there. Huh. Well, the last podcast I did was with Kurt Howard, and it was a report from our Idaho archery elk hunt. And I've got some keen observations about your elk in Idaho. <laughs> Do we have elk in Idaho? You have elk. I okay. don't know how many bulls you have. I think you have four bulls in the state of Idaho. Did you hear them all bugle? No, I heard one of them bugle. <laughs> okay, well, that's about par then, 25%. Yeah, and now in that episode, we're talking about how we found one bull that finally was all worked up. And at the time we did the podcast, Kurt and I were like, how did that bull smell us from 650 yards? Well, now we're back home. We look at the footage. What we find out is the elk aren't even looking at us. The cowboy who was moving his cows off the grazing allotment is coming up the creek bottom. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, talk about bad timing, right? Of all the times that... A cowboy could be moving his cows up the creek bottom. It happens to be the one morning when we have one bull that's going crazy and the elk push off three miles away. Man. That kind of explains how my Idaho elk hunting experience went. Beautiful country. Oh, man. You got beautiful country there. And the the weather was great. I mean, it was T-shirt weather at night, so... Yeah, but if you're camping, one, that's just perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one thing I've never, in all my years of traveling elk country, I have never been in a basin that has as many skeletons of elk as that basin. Really? And I don't, I don't know what it is. If it's winter kill, if that's where they winter and the wolves get in there, or that much hunt, you know, that many hunters. But a lot of these are elk that are laying there and it's a whole skeleton including the front leg and the back leg which maybe if someone boned it out and laid the back leg right on the <laughs> pelvic bone that would make sense these these don't look like hunter caught let's put it that way yeah based on the autopsy the fact that the femurs and the tibias are laying right there tell me these are probably not hunter kills because wow. hunters usually will carry the quarter out or even if they bone it out, a lot of times they throw the bone far away from the, the carcass. Yeah. And so, yeah, typically if you're finding hunter killed carcasses, you're just finding a rib cage and a vertebrae. Mm-hmm. Hmm. No, we found the whole thing. We even pulled the old trick. We found a dead head and we hung it in a tree. And even that didn't work for good luck. Really? Yeah. See, I've been telling you, you need to be packing those things out. Uh, probably should have. At least it would have looked like we had an elk to show for it then. <laughs> but here's the other part. So we go in, you guys get a blizzard on Labor Day. or Yeah, it was Labor yeah, Day. Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And 
we're like, you know what, we're not climbing up on that mountain and fighting 40 mile an hour winds with 10 degree temperatures. So we go in the day after Labor Day. There's nobody there. We're the only ones at the campground. I'm like, hmm, we might be in the wrong spot. Maybe this place is closed. (laughs) That probably should have been a sign for you. Yeah. We never encountered a single hunter when we were in there. We encountered the cowboy. And when we came out from the campground all the way to the main highway, it was camp after camp after camp after camp. I've never seen that many people show up in the course of a couple days in the, in the forest. Hmm. I couldn't believe it. So That's crazy. I don't know yeah, if the that- rest... If Did you guys encounter a ton of people in the woods this year? You know, we didn't really. I mean, we definitely saw people, but it wasn't, you know, like it was overwhelming. Opening day was rough. You know, it opened on the weekend mm-hmm. here. So yeah. opening day was definitely um, tough, but opening day was also our best bugling action that first week. Uh, huh. Yeah, it just it was hot and dry. And then, like you said, that Saturday of Labor Day week, I think it was Saturday, Friday or Saturday, it uh, it got cold and we got snowed on. That happened to be the day we were riding motorcycles, too, and <laughs> took Dale on a, I was going to say a crash course of motorcycle riding, but it literally was a, a crash course. We uh, huh. We borrowed one of your camera guys for, a, turned out to be a couple weeks during September, and mm-hmm. uh We'd asked him, you know, you comfortable on motorcycles? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Said single track stuff in the mountains. It's nothing too dangerous or anything, but it's, you know, it's single track. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Well, I just, I was first in line and rode ahead, and then there was Dale, and then Donnie was kind of bringing up the back, and I swear I waited an hour and a half up at the ridge for him, and I I built a fire, trying to keep warm (laughs) there and that, and they got up there and had a, I had a fire going. I'd already eaten my lunch and all my food, and Dale was just white as a ghost, and we got back that night, and we'd actually got into a couple bugles. They were 3,000 feet in elevation down, but it was first bugles we'd heard in three days, and so I was pretty optimistic and said, if we head up in there tomorrow, I'm pretty sure we can we can get down on those elk and have some excitement. And Dale said, if you guys are going back in there on motorcycles, you're going to have to get another camera guy. <laughs> <laughs> he uh we, we did find another trail and he did a lot better on that well it was a it was a yeah. road basically but uh yeah well it was my plan to hunt on motorcycles was a lot more optimistic and donnie i think was back there secretly saying thank you dale you you spared me uh dale took the hit for donnie he did yep oh well that's good. I, I I have not seen uh, a workers' comp claim, so that's good. <laughs> that's why I invited him back the next week, just to make sure he had time to heal up before he got back to you. And all right, we, we took it a lot more easy. We did ride the uh, the e bikes. Mm, how'd that uh, work? It was so great. You know, in, in Idaho <laughs> National Forest, they're considered uh, motorized vehicle, so okay. you can't ride them on any non motorized. Uh, trails or roads on national forest but what we did find was we looked a lot closer at a lot of these brushed in roads that we thought were non-motorized you know just because they're so brushed in you can't even ride a a side-by-side on them Mm -hmm. and there are several of them that say uh i forget what it is any any and all vehicles i think access 
And we were able to take the e-bikes on several of those, and they were brushed in. I mean, we definitely pushed through brush, but definitely saved us a lot of a lot of time and energy getting back on some of those roads. And then you get back in a mile through all that brush, and a lot of times they open up and able to cruise on them. So we did explore wow. some new country and able to access some country we probably wouldn't have otherwise tried to access. And uh, unfortunately, the results were a lot of similar. <laughs> we saw a lot of pretty country and just didn't hear a lot of bugles. But Yeah. So what do you make of all the comments we've been receiving about what's going on this year this is the craziest year i've ever had elk hunting and and what you and i've been talking about here probably is a little bit of confirmation that we're having some of the same experiences of uh of just it being a different year i i I don't know i don't want to make too much of it because it easily can be just you know Oh, well, that's how it goes. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, But here in Montana, I've got guys who normally are dialed into elk like nobody's business. And when I talk to them, they're like, I don't know. I must have forgot how to hunt elk. I, I haven't had any encounters or I had one, you know, lone encounter or whatever. Um, I throw that out there because it's, it, I guess for people who think that everybody just goes out there and, you know, elk come running in, everybody's going to, all of us have our, our times where it's a head scratcher. Yeah. No, and we were fortunate that the Oregon shut down because it gave us an extra week here in Idaho and Donnie and I, neither one filled our tags that first week. And typically that first week, it's tough. It's it's always tough. You know, there's not as many bugles. You've got to cover more country. Uh, but I just always found that if I could get an elk to answer me early, I could move in on him and, and usually get him riled up. And this year, we had way less bugles. We had uh, opening day, we had one bull that was really fired up. He was bugling good, but he wouldn't come in. And, you know, once that afternoon, once we moved in, we realized why he was a smaller bull that had cows and he was just timid. He was very, very vocal, but a lot of talk and, and no action. Uh, then the next two, two days, we didn't hear bugles. Uh, then we heard the ones on the motorcycle ride that they were a long way off. We dropped 1,500 feet in elevation that evening Ooh. thinking maybe it, maybe they just sound like they're farther. Maybe they're just over the first little break there. And when we got 1,500 feet lower, we bugled, and they were still another 1,500 feet below us. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's getting dark. It did not getting dark, but we had maybe 45 minutes of, of daylight left. And I thought we could probably get there but it's going to take us hours to get out. And so we decided not to drop in. And that's, that's when we thought we'd be able to go in the next day. The next afternoon we had a bull scream at us and we moved in on him and he went quiet. And the next time we heard him bugle, he was a half a mile up the drainage. We went up after him and, and never did catch up to him. And then after dark, he started bugling again. Uh, and then for the next couple of days, it was tough. But then when we didn't go to Oregon, we got really fortunate in that 
we timed it really good and we had a couple really good days of bugling action where there were, you know, I think the herd bulls were just coming into the herd. There were the younger bulls there. There was a lot of bugling and uh, the bulls wanted to play a little bit more. And Donnie and I ended up both shooting our bulls uh, during that time. But Mm -hmm. then I hunted with my kids after that, those few days that we had and it was rough. I mean, just we we had bugles, but we couldn't get close to them. We'd get close and cow call, and they'd go quiet and move up the hill 400 yards. We'd get close and challenge them, and they'd go quiet and move up the hill 400 yards. It was just like they didn't want to fully engage in, in rut behavior. And I don't know, you know, it was hot. It was definitely, you know, the daytime temperatures were in the 80s. It was only getting down to the mid-40s or 50s at night. Uh, it was smoky. All the fires around here is just, you know, my throat hurt just from breathing in the smoke. Uh, it was, we're coming, you know, full moon was coming up. So I don't, you know, I can't really pin it on anything. I guess the only thing mm-hmm. I can think of that was different was the combination of all three of those things. Uh, just kind of muffled it a little bit. It, it stifled what we were yeah. expecting for sure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> in our comments here from the elk talk podcast contact us for him the guy shane he's wrote this thing and he's like hey you know guys uh my brother and i have spent a lot of time in this same area of idaho uh this year i'm highlighting here so i don't rat him out uh he said we hunted from september 9th through september 20th we saw one elk at 11 p.m. on the road while driving around at night bugling to try to locate. And in the course of those 11 days, we heard two bugles, and one of those was at midnight. He says, we found fresh sign, but we could not get our eyes or ears on any bulls nor cows. We tried a number of tactics. We were highly mobile, cold calling, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I feel like this year was a big step backwards for us, despite all the intel, the solid plan, and how hard we worked. Could you guys give any insight as to what you have tried or anything we could have done differently? I think we just answered his question. (laughs) The only other thing I would add there is, I mean, as you were reading what he was seeing and experiencing, the first thing that popped into my mind was they had to have been hunting in a unit where there were wolves. Okay. And, you know, I mean, if you're seeing a bunch of sign and not hearing any bugles from the 9th through the 20th, 11 days of hunting, and you're not hearing any bugles, especially even at night, th- there's got to be more than just the heat and the moon and, and the smoke. I think you throw wolves in there, too, and that. Because we did. We had slow days, but there were days we covered a lot of country, and we'd get into those pockets where it's like, there are trails all over in here and we'd bugle and nothing bugle and nothing. We'd go over a ridge and bugle and there'd be three bulls down in that little basin. And so it was a matter of finding those little pockets. But once we got into to good sign, we almost always had at least bugles. You know, once we moved in, we might not have been able to do anything with those bugles, but we definitely heard elk at least. And so I, I would say he probably was facing all of those challenges plus uh, probably an active pack of wolves in that area. Hmm. Well, maybe that's uh, maybe that explains it. I I was gonna say, well, sounds like you were hunting next to me, is what I, yeah. I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did find out: you have the dumbest grouse. Well, no, you have the most 
koi grouse in the world in Idaho. So the first two days of the hunt, I said, look, I can't shoot any grouse because it was really dry. So our film permit said no open fires. So if I shoot a grouse in the first half of the hunt, what am I going to do? I can't, you know, they'll spoil and I can't cook them on an open fire. There were grouse walking around. It looked like chickens in my neighbor's yard. And I didn't shoot a single one of them. The last few days I told Kurt, I'm like, I'm on full full grouse alert here. Do you think we saw another grouse the last two days? Probably not. Yeah. Same in Wyoming on the deer hunt. There were grouse everywhere. But I didn't have the legal means of take, so they all got away. I didn't know if you could shoot them with a center fire rifle. So. <laughs> <laughs> Come to find out, you could. But oh, so. that's awesome. But it, it, it's curious, you know, when we were deer hunting, there were three days. I think it was what days would it have been? The nineteenth, tw- yeah, the nineteenth, the twentieth, and the twenty-first. The elk were going absolutely bonkers, like all day long. We're sitting on these on these knobs glassing for deer, and the elk are down below us in these avalanche shoots. It, it, I, I don't know that I've ever heard elk bugle and carry on for 72 hours nonstop. Man. I don't know. And I'm like, where were these guys when I was in Idaho eight, 10 days uh, ago? What were the dates? September 19th, 20th, and 21st. Yeah, that's that's what they should be doing, you know. And, and yeah. it was good here on those days, as far as bugling. The bulls were bugling, but I've never seen it here where the elk go quiet at nine thirty in the morning and don't bugle again until an hour before dark. Yeah, typically on those dates, you know, we're able to keep them bugling all day, and we had multiple times where we'd work in into a bedding area and cow call, and a bull would make a little bedded bugle, which you know, sometimes all we need. And so after a couple of experiences of trying all the normal tactics and and having it not work, I said, you know what, we're just going to slip in there and just wait and let them get curious and see if they want to start talking. And we'd wait sometimes an hour after that bull would let out a bedded bugle and he'd let out another one an hour later, but he was 400 yards up the hill. And just so, so much that was unexplainable and, and, unpredicted and <laughs> frustrating this year. And, and we did see it six years ago. I hunted Montana and had very similar conditions there uh, early, just tough getting an elk to bugle, tough getting them to commit and come in. Uh, and I kind of wrote it off as, well, that's just Montana. But when I got back to Idaho and I didn't hunt Idaho that year, but everybody said kind of the same thing. I don't know what's going on, but couldn't get anything to talk and couldn't find elk and, um, I haven't seen it since then, but this year was definitely that year that, you know, for whatever reason, I, we'll just say it was because it was the year 2020 and everything seems to be messed up. So, hmm. Well, then I talked to some people who've been hunting here in Montana the last, you know, the last week of September, and they said it's been unreal. Really? I I just, I, I guess we're, we're focusing on that because I, I just have been sorting through so many of these questions and comments, and the ones that came earlier in September, the first three weeks, all expressed the same thing that you and I experienced. <laughs> and uh, 
I don't, uh, I wish I had the answer to say, well, you should have done this. You should have done that. But if I had that answer, that's what I would have done. So, but I don't, but the good news is I leave tomorrow for Colorado. I have a first season rifle tag and I'm all business on this one, Corey. <laughs> My freezer's full. I've been eating fish now for six weeks. Ooh. Yeah. What kind just of fish? Uh, there's this company I work with in Billings called the Billings Seafood Guys. They have a program called the Wild Alaska Seafood Box. It's like a Ooh. subscription service. And so I get fresh Alaska seafood to my house once a month. And... Shameless plug, if you use promo code Randy for a subscription, you'll get scallops <laughs> for life. Uh, but, what? Uh, yeah, for the life of your subscription. Yeah. Not for your life, but. Yeah. Uh, so I'm. Did they I'm deliver to Idaho? Oh, yeah. They'll deliver really? it anywhere. Wow. Overnight. Yeah. So, but that's where I've been getting my fish. So I'm going to, uh, to Colorado on this first season. So. First rifle season this year in Colorado opens October 10th. I still think there's going to be a few bulls that are bugling because archery season closed the last weekend of September. The muzzleloader season, where they probably have heard some bang, pop, boom noises, closed even earlier than that. So they're hopefully a little bit back in their routine of, all right, the disruption's over. Let's get serious about bugling and partying again. And uh, I'm bringing my flute down there, and I'm going to try strike up the band and call one in and shoot them. You think I'm wasting my time on October 10th? I don't think so. In fact, this year of, of any year, I'm just hoping that it's late. But yeah. that that's why we weren't hearing a lot of bugles. Uh, and if it isn't, if it wasn't late and it was on time, I think it was so severely muted that the second rut, when it comes back around, is going to be better than normal. Because I don't think that there were a lot of cows getting bred just from my time out in the in the field. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that October 10th, I'm planning on October 15th calling in elk. That's when rifle season opens here, general rifle season in Idaho. And uh, there's some places we got into elk that I'm planning on going back and hoping to, to call them in for the kiddos. And then we're actually, we're doing a, a later season rifle hunt the last week of October. And uh, we're going back in and, and I'm anticipating being able to hear bugle, maybe not calling them in, but I'm anticipating that where we're going, we should be able to still, still hear some bugles. Hmm. I like that. You, you're yeah. giving me encouragement here, Corey. Yeah, I'm, I fully expect if, if I go there and I don't call one in, I'm going to blame it on you. Well, I'm, I'm going to go to the Elk Talk podcast link <laughs> and send a message that said, Corey doesn't know what he's talking about. An anonymous message. Yeah. <laughs> this sure sounds like Randy. <laughs> no, so here here's my strategy. And, I, I, you know, this is this period where we're transitioning from peak rut to post rut and I'm trying to calculate in my head all right if the first cycle first peak of the rut of September was somewhat muted 
are there more cows that are going to come into a second cycle? I don't know that for sure. I'm hoping that. Yeah, but then I'm also, I'm also looking at the fact, and, and this is just to give people some insight about how I plan and, and do my hunts. I, I got a hold of the BLM. I know that there are outfitters who operate in the area that I'm going. Uh, and if you look at the Google imagery from October 15th of a certain year, you can see where all their camps are. <laughs> So note to those of you who do this kind of stuff. So their camps are all at nine to 10,000 feet. So I'm going up to about 11,000 thinking, all right, in Colorado, you know, there's a lot of 14,000 peaks, 14,000 foot peaks in this unit. So for elk to be at 11,000 is not unexpected. So my idea is I'm going to go up higher for two reasons. One, I think hunting pressure from the outfitter camp is going to push them up higher after the first day when the shooting starts. And second, it's been a warm year. I don't think there's any snow or any snow to speak of up higher that's going to force them further down the transition range. So that transition range, I always identify as where the summer range and it's the, that part of the the migratory landscape between the high summer range and the low winter range. And usually in hunting season, the elk are somewhere in that transition range. I think because of how mild it's been, how dry it's been, the elk are going to be higher up in the upper half of that transition range. And that's where I'm going to focus. So you're talking 12 to 13,000 feet? Uh in this area, that's mostly scree and rock. So gotcha. I'm looking like eleven to twelve thousand, somewhere in there. Gotcha. So uh, I'll report back to you <laughs> whether or not my strategy is worth a damn. But, yeah. Um, I am going to do a lot of calling. I'm bringing my my big bully bugle from Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. I'm bringing all my and my whole array of calls i'm trying everything and then here because of just people say how has covid affected your plans well before i can go to the next hunt i have to get a covid test at least 72 hours prior to leaving and it better show up negative so that means i got to cut my colorado elk hunt from five days down to three in order to get home in time to get my covid test so I'm leaving two days early, and I'm, I've got a full day and a half. So I'm leaving actually three days early, day and a half to get there and get in. And then I'm allocating a day and a half to scouting before season even opens. Wow. And, uh, so we'll see if my theory that in rifle seasons, uh, my theory always is I'll give up a day of, sca- a day of hunting for a day of scouting. And the idea is go there, locatable, pattern him, and shoot him opening morning. Um, we're going to see whether or not that works. I might just end up with an empty sack. I'll come home, kick in the dirt, be long in the face, and say, Corey, you need a new co-host <laughs> on the Elk Talk podcast because I'm completely <laughs> clueless. Uh. And, and if it gives you any idea of how serious I am about this. This year was going to be my year where I did one rifle, 
one one season, one rifle. Where I was going to hunt the entire season with my 7mm 08, I'm bringing my 300 win mag on this hunt. Oh, you're serious. I I am downright serious about this. I I, I just my freezer's empty, man. I, <laughs> I don't have any elk meat in my freezer, and it's October whatever it is today. So, I I'll, I I I throw that out there because it's I know that a lot of people go to Colorado or even even other states like you're saying, you know, Idaho. You guys open five days later. Yeah. It is that weird period between the peak rut kind of starting to end. And at least the mature bulls starting to drift off into their solo places to recover and get away from hunting pressure until they start bachelor getting into their bachelor herds again in early November. And uh, yep. it'll be interesting to see what I find. Um, yeah. And, no, uh, I'm just kind of banking on banking on them talking later than normal this year and trying to get it done with the rifle myself. Yeah. So, tons of other comments. I'm not even sure which ones we should start with. Some of them are our ideas. Someone had said that they heard our our uh, podcast about how much you like snakes. Uh, <laughs> have you you encountered any snakes yet this year? No. We in fact the the day when we dropped 1,500 feet in elevation. Part of the uh, the motivation to not drop the next fifteen hundred was it would put us down in snake country, uh, or at least really close to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll use the three thousand foot vertical pack out, and it only being forty minutes before dark as my excuse. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, if I'm on the fence at all, we could uh, we could just turn around and go back up because there may be snakes down there. Yeah. Any grizzly bear encounters this year? No, we uh, we just hunted Idaho and then Utah so far, and okay. no grizzlies. No, none for me either. But now I'm going through some more of these comments, and Thomas says, hey, just wanted to say thanks for all the great tips and tactics. Montana, second weekend of season, I arrowed a bull, my first. Woohoo! So I'll see. Excellent. Congrats. Yeah, that, yeah. that means like <laughs> September 13th or 14th. He already filled his tag, and I'm sitting there singing the blues. So <laughs> maybe we should have Thomas do this. Exactly. But, so um, then we got this other person who uh, you, you'd probably be uh, best to answer this. And we had a few. Uh, this time of year, we get a lot of questions about calling tactics and strategies about what works what should i do differently um and so he said he's i've listened to all your podcasts when you guys talk about calling and calling setups um and and we can't do this i mean not today anyhow he says can you do a podcast about what calls to use when to use them and include audio examples maybe someday i think in the university of elk hunting you do all that don't you I do. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there's a very detailed, there's actually two uh, complete modules in there on elk calls and calling elk, which that's two different topics. The elk calls is how to select the right elk calls, how to use the elk calls, how do you maximize uh, your ability with elk calls. And then the calling elk is how to use the elk calls 
to calling elk. So the strategies, the tactics, um, what each of the different uh, labeled elk sounds actually sound like with, you know, audio and, and everything. So yeah, okay. if, if someone was interested in a full tutorial on elk calls and calling elk, uh, two of the 17 modules in the University of Elk Hunting online course go into quite a bit of detail on that. And they can find that at Elk 101? Yeah, at elk101.com. And be sure and use the uh, promo code ELKTALK. And, and we probably need to clarify, all of these promo codes we talk about, they're all the same. It's Elk Talk. Yeah. And it's all one word, no spaces, and it doesn't usually matter if it's capitalized or anything. But we get right. a handful of emails each week from people saying, I just tried this over at GerberGear.com or at, you know, wherever it is, and come to find out they're putting a space in between elk and talk or something like that. So it's just elk talk, all one word. Yeah. So I'm going to follow with some of these questions he asked. and. These might be easy yes or no's. Or, so he says, is it possible to be too loud with your cow calls and your bull calls? Yes. You can be too loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, so my typical sequence when I'm trying to locate an elk with calls, I start off with a cow call and I just do a soft cow call. And then I'll escalate the cow call, so I'll cow call through my bugle tube. And okay. then I'll do a soft location bugle, and then I'll do a louder one. And the reason why is if there's an elk 80 yards away, I don't want to just blow him out of the woods right off. The first thing he hears is this really loud, aggressive bugle. I think you can be too loud if, if you're too close to the elk initially. Uh, so I start off quieter, get louder, 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 and then if nothing, I, I move on. But once you get engaged with that elk and you're moving in, I think too loud on a cow call if you're too close can sound unrealistic. Uh, I think, you know, you, the emotion is more important than the volume. They Elk have incredibly good hearing, and so I think... Uh, you don't need to broadcast it through a tube once you get close. You can use the tube to directionally broadcast it to make it sound like it's farther behind you or off to the side, and, and I do that sometimes, but I don't want to be too loud. When it comes okay. to a challenge bugle, I don't think you can be too loud. Once you've engaged that elk, you're in close, and you want to tell him, you know, you're an idiot, I want to fight. Um, I, I don't think you can be too loud, and I don't think you can be too aggressive. So you kind of approach it like I do with glassing. I always glass the the closest stuff first because if they're far, far away, it's not like they're on alert and you're going to spook them if they're a thousand yards away. But if they're 200 yards away, you want to see those ones right away. So I start glassing close. So your calling sequence is predicated on the idea that there might be some close and if I don't get a response, yeah, then I'll crank up the volume. Yep. Okay. So yep, I, don't wanna, I don't want to blow them out of the water, you know, with my first 
attempt to locate them if they are close. And it does happen sometimes. You know, we'll let out yeah. a soft cow call and immediately a bull will answer 100 yards away and it's scramble time getting a good setup. You know, <laughs> is the wind good? You know, all those things. And typically by the time we spend that three minutes getting everything locked in and good, get set up and we cow call again, he answers from 400 yards away. <laughs> that that seemed to be the story this year anyway. <laughs> uh, so you've already answered some of the next questions then. So first he is talking about locating calls. Now he switches his questions to to challenge calls. And you've answered this one. Can you be too big and too loud when making a challenge? No. I think you just answered I don't think no. so. And I think, you know, that goes, sometimes people say, what if it's just a, a young bull? And I really think that when you're, when you're issuing that challenge, you are, you're communicating to an instinct in that elk and a young bull, a spike, anything. And I, I probably told the story before, but we were in Oregon and I got a spike to come in with his eyes rolled back, slobbering out of his nose, bugling, which I don't hear spikes bugle a whole lot. <laughs> he was growling and everything coming in. And I think it's just, we trip that trigger. It's a it's a natural response when they get challenged to come in and, and fight. And obviously yeah. the spike wasn't going to come in and engage in a full-on battle with a big mature six-point, but he right. went through the motions. He came in with his head back with, I mean, he literally was just out of his mind wild coming in to a challenge bugle. Hmm. Well, then this this person switches, or, or I don't want to say switches, continues, let's say that. Uh, he says, with challenge calls, is there such thing as a safe challenge call that won't scare them off? And if so, what does a safe challenge call sound like? <laughs> See, we're getting way too complicated for my, my calling <laughs> strategy. <laughs> There's just one challenge bugle, you know, and, and you do have to play it by ear. You know, you have to, each situation is going to be a little different, but I would never, uh, for me personally, classify, you know, a safe versus a, a potentially not safe challenge bugle. Uh, mm -hmm. If I'm going to challenge him, I'm going to challenge him, you know, and that's kind of the same. If you're uh, if you're at a pre-fight weigh-in with an opponent at a boxing match, you know, you either want to get him riled up or you don't. There's there's you. I don't want to use a safe challenge bugle. There might be a safe challenge bugle. I can't ever think of a time where I'd want to use it. If I'm using a challenge bugle, I want to issue a challenge. I want to make sure they know. And yeah, sometimes they do. They're like, mm, okay, I'm out. Yeah. But at that point, I've tried the cow call. That didn't get them in. I issue that challenge. They don't want to fight. At that point, you know, I I think we've tried about everything we can. We had a few instances like that this year where we used cow calls. We escalated it to challenge. We raked. I glunked. I did everything in my power, and I couldn't pull that bull in. And, hmm. you know, we spent two and a half hours one time with my daughter Jessie set up on a big herd bull, and I just couldn't pull him in. I just, you know, I tried everything, and I was incredibly frustrated, but it just didn't work. Yeah. Huh. So this person kind of asks a question that's a little bit related to something I just touched on. Uh, hey, Corey and Randy, thanks for doing the podcast. Um, 
I was out scouting before season, found my location, come to find out that an outfitter is permitted in this area. And as a condition of their public land permit for outfitting, they're allowed to stay in this area the whole season. We as non-permitted or non-commercial users have to move every 14 days. Once the outfitter moved in, it seemed like the elk changed their patterns. Have you experienced this? Um, I guess I I can't say that I've experienced it, uh, but it doesn't surprise me that if an elk or an outfitter comes in and starts setting up his wall tents or his spike camps, that the behavior you saw in the elk in late August or their locations uh, doesn't surprise me at all that they would change. Yeah, no, it's just human presence, you know, and if it's prolonged presence in the same location, the effect that that presence has on the elk is going to be prolonged as well. You know, yeah. if, if you go in and camp somewhere for seven days and move out two days later, the elk might have settled down and come back into that area. But when you have a, a presence there, and it's probably have horses, they probably aren't being overly quiet at camp. Maybe they have campfires. Uh, their scent, you know, during the day is going up. At night, it's going down. So you're getting, you know, the, the drainages nearby filled with scent. It's going to have an effect on the elk for sure. Not to mention, you've got them rotating hunters in and out of these areas, and they're probably riding horses through the areas and all of that. So yeah, no doubt it'll it'll have an effect. Yeah, I I think that's the case. Whether it's an outfitter, whether it's just some other hunters come in and they set up a camp. I mean, that's that's one of the things. It's just a reality of public land hunting. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's to me. That's why in my e-scouting plans, I always have multiple fallback options because I absolutely I just never know when when something's going to happen and someone's going to show up, and it's not going to work out the way that I had hoped. And kind of a side note to what the person asked there is, a lot of folks don't know this, but in most of the public lands I'm aware of, there's a 14-day camping limit. In other words, you can't come and put your camper in two months before season to quote-unquote reserve your spot. Uh, I don't know how well it's enforced, but the regulations say 14 days. And there are some exceptions, like outfitters who they go through this whole process of commercial use permits and everything else. And as a result of paying that fee, it's a percentage of their revenue. I can't remember what it is, but usually they're exempted from that because of the big fee that they pay. So, but. Yep. Uh, yeah, another, really quickly, it brought up a, a, something I experienced this year, and, and I was able to document it, which, you know, I haven't always been able to in the past, but we always get the question about cattle and sheep and, mm-hmm. you know, how long after they move sheep out of a, an allotment, a grazing allotment, will the elk come back in there? Or, you know, do cattle affect them? And I think that cattle, as long as they aren't way overgrazed, they still leave feed for the elk, and the elk and the cattle can can co-mingle there happily. Sheep, my experience has been, they eat everything down to the dirt, and the elk move out. So we hunted Utah. Uh, We gave away the, the hunt with mountain ops earlier this year, and the winner of that, we took them on a hunt in Utah. It was on private land, which... It has to be legally to, to be able to do it. So 
Um, we still, we still hunt everything else, public land, but in order to give away that hunt and, and the way we did it, it had to be on, on private land. So, yeah. uh, we, we hunted bordering another piece of private land and the elk were screaming literally just across the fence, hundred yards, 200 yards across the fence. Huh. And there wasn't anything on our side of the fence where we were camped. And, you know, we made a quick loop one night, the next morning got up and hunted and I noticed there were sheep tracks everywhere and they had just moved the sheep out, I think four or five days before this. And I took a picture of the fence line and on the side where there were no sheep, there was tall grass, there were big clumps of green grass on the side where there had been sheep. It was literally mm-hmm. nothing but dirt and maybe a couple clumps of old dry grass. And so that's, you know, that picture there will always stick with me that if there are sheep in the area, you've got to move on. You've got to, you know, whether it's human pressure might affect the elk. If there are sheep, though, then pressure from grazing sheep, I would say don't even waste your time there. Yep. No, I I would agree. In fact, where Kurt and I were hunting in Idaho, one side of the fence was so a lot of people don't realize you'll see a fence going across public land and they're like oh is that a public private boundary usually what it is is an allotment fence where it keeps the cattle in certain areas where this year they get to graze this allotment next year they rotate into the neighboring allotment and so uh kurt and i were in this spot and the water was on the place where the cattle were actively in the allotment and it was grazed down pretty hard but not not (laughs) cattle are kind of lazy they like to stay (laughs) and graze near the water okay they don't want to go and make a big traverse every day from water to grass water to grass so they just kind of it's like when you mow your lawn and you keep doing these patterns well any place that was close to water was mowed down pretty heavily by the cattle you get up on the ridges that took a little bit of a hike to get there and was far away from the water. The grass hadn't been touched, even though it was within the active allotment. And guess where the elk were? In those yep. spots, the, the, the elk we did see. So uh, one of the things people might want to do, uh, and I know all the range officers are going to be like, Newberg, don't tell them to call me. But <laughs> you can find out if the area you're hunting has public land grazing and what the terms or, or the periods of grazing are. And all it takes is a phone call. Hopefully you can get a hold of the, the range officer and say, hey, I'm going to be in this area. Is there a public allotment for grazing? If so, when do they graze it? When do they have to have the cattle off there? And you can do some of your planning based on that. So, Yep. Little tip, great, great information. Yeah, <laughs> no charge for that advice. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll find grazing allotments in some of the strangest places where you'd never expect it. You know, way, way up high with no roads. We hiked in a couple of years yeah. ago, like three and a half miles, and there was a sheep camp up there. Whoa, huh? That that kind of crosses that off your place. That, that would be yeah. frustrating to hike way up there a couple miles and find a grazing allotment that was bombed out by sheep. Yeah, and it was. And, you know, with the way we found it was we walked over a ridge and bugled, and all of a sudden dogs started barking down below us. And I thought, that's not a wolf or a coyote. That sounds like a dog, like a regular dog. 
And uh, we walked up to the ridge, and sure enough, there's a tent there. And then once we got on the ridge, on the backside, all the sheep were down there, and we could hear them moaning or baying or whatever they bagging down in the down in the draw there. And it's like, Ugh. man. So we wasted that morning getting up into that area and then getting out of there. Huh. Well, you can kind of head that off a little bit with a phone call, but don't wait yeah. until the day before you're getting ready to leave. You know, make that phone call in June once you're putting your plan together, uh, yep. because that that'll give that person time to to get back to you. Um, so uh, this person has a question that's somewhat similar to a planning thing that, or at least a consideration I've had to make for my Colorado hunt. And we've talked about this before, but I think uh, refreshing it or bringing it back up again, since we're so close to these seasons might be worthwhile. Um, person says when camping at elevation above above where elk are feeding at night how do you go about your morning hunt with the thermals going down so my answer to that is i don't necessarily camp above them i i'm like in colorado i'm gonna i purposefully have camped about a mile from where i think the elk are going to be and I'm going to be camping at the same exact, ele- not same exact, but general approximate elevation of where I think the elk will be. That way, no matter whether I have an uphill or downhill, I'm kind of at their level. I can hunt. I, it gives me the options, I guess. If they're above me, okay, I can go at them and have a crosswind coming down in the morning. Or if it's in the afternoon, I'll have a crosswind going up. Uh, but I, I know I, I encountered some camps uh, this year in, in Wyoming that were right in the middle of where I think the elk would be. It's like, hmm, darn. Maybe that's why there aren't any elk here right now. <laughs> no. And the, you know, there's so, always that allure of, I want to lay in my tent at night and listen to the elk bugle. Yeah. But if you're doing that, most likely the elk aren't going to be bugling there for long. And, and, you know, you think about when are you in camp? Usually after dark until just before daylight. During that yeah. time, thermals are always going to be going down. And if you're camping up on a ridge above a drainage that you want to hunt, that drainage is getting your scent. So I always yep. try to, if, if there's a drainage that's full of elk, I'll just back go over the backside of the ridge, maybe 100 yards. So the thermals are going down away from the drainage, you know, completely opposite from the the direction of the drainage I want to hunt. And I'm only 100 yards away from that ridge line, but I know that my scent's not going down there. And then the next morning when you approach it, you've got to keep that in mind that you're going to be on the ridge, thermals are going down. You want to be on a finger ridge that's at least separated by a a couple of draws from the elk and, and the ridge that they're on. Because if you're popping over the ridge right on top of the elk, they're going to smell you. And so, you, like you said, you want to be able to have that flexibility of dropping down, getting to their level, and then coming across to them. Yeah. Well, for me, I would I, – all other things being equal, if I had to choose between camping above them or camping below them, I'm camping below them just because of Always. what you mentioned. At night, I want my scent to be going – 
further down the drainage. So if I'm below the elk and they're up, I don't got to worry about stinking it up. Plus, when I get up in the dark and I start working my way up to to where I'm going to hunt, I have a downhill thermal in yeah. my face. And uh, that's, I don't know, maybe it's not the best strategy, but that that is how I do it. If, if I am given a choice, I'm camping below them rather than above them. Yep, absolutely. And the other thing to keep in mind, we get asked a lot, campfire or no campfire? You know, mm-hmm. how quiet do you have to be? Well, it really depends on how close to the elk you are. If, if you're in the same drainage as them, you're down below them, so they aren't going to smell you, but they can hear you. So you, you don't want to be down there talking. You don't want to be, you know, down there banging titanium pots and pans around it you know you, you want to be quiet you don't want to have a presence there and you know for campfires I'm, I'm the same if i'm bivied in somewhere i typically am not going to have a campfire now there are exceptions and this year i i'm notorious for not having campfires at any camp and yeah. i'm definitely relaxing on on that stance i built four fires in a 24-hour period this year during archery Whoa. season and Corey it was during the fire. Four of them. Four of them. Yeah. Man, what's the world coming to? Well, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at camp, the one night we got back and it was cold. It was chilly at camp. We were right down. We camped near a creek, which I don't like camping by a creek just because they do get cold. Uh, but we camped there and it was chilly. And so I built a fire. Uh, the next morning, built a fire while I was waiting because... You know, we're waiting on people to get ready, and I had some time, so I just built a fire. And then uh, I was trying to think. So that that afternoon was when it snowed on us, and I was waiting on Dale and Donnie on the motorcycles, build another fire. And then that night going out, I got about halfway down the mountain and thought, you know what, if they have troubles or something, I don't want to get all the way to the truck and wait for two hours and then come all the way back in. So I stopped and couldn't hear them, so... I built another little fire. And of course, all of these times is when it was snowing or raining and the ground was good and wet. The rest of our yeah. season, I don't think we could have even built a fire if we wanted to, just for the the risk of it going yeah. crazy. Yeah. That's, when we were in Wyoming, elk, the last two days when we did the elk hunt, we called in a fire. We saw a fire about four or five miles away. And, really? And, uh, yeah. It looked like we're possibly a campfire had you know it got really windy that afternoon and all of a sudden here's this big plume of smoke coming through the trees i mean like big so yeah. we called it in and that afternoon and the next morning there were a bunch of helicopters circling over that area i don't know what had happened to it that night if they'd sent in a crew that started putting it out but point of that being is you know if we are doing fires we we got to make sure they're out, out, out. In other words, put your hand down there and it's it's cool to the touch. So, yeah. Yeah, a couple other reasons I wanted fires was I got some new fire starter. Have yeah. you seen Pyro Putty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, got some. Yeah, I, I bought some this summer and thought, oh, I'll see how it works. Love it. Works awesome. And then the other reason is we've been watching, we've been binge watching uh, seasons of the show alone. Uh And it's where they take people out and drop them off by themselves. They have to self-film everything and they have to basically survive off of the land. Um, Mm -hmm. So food, everything, they have to 
they have to be able to sustain themselves out there. And so they're, you know, obviously they've been on Vancouver Island and stuff where everything's wet and it's hard to get a fire started. And so I was just wanting to make sure I was brushed up on my fire starting skills in case <laughs> they ever call and want me to go on the show. Oh, really? Huh. Well, uh, if they ever did, I just want to make sure I knew how to get a fire going. I heard the prize is like a half million dollars if you're the last person to tap out. Is that true? It's true. Yeah. Hmm. They ought to call me. Yeah, they should. I won't, I won't tap out. I'll just sleep for 30 days. <laughs> You'd probably be disappointed when they said you couldn't bring your six cases of Mountain Ops protein performance bars with you, too. Probably would be. Those are uh, good, Corey. I, you know me. I'm, I'm pretty particular. I'm not because of my liver condition. I don't do supplements because the, the Mayo Clinic says, oh, Randy, you wouldn't absorb any of that. But whatever they got in these, what do you call them? Performance bars? Yeah, just their so, protein so, bars, performance bars. I tell you what, I now have to put them under lock and key because I got these camera guys. I let them eat one. They're like, hey, man, where'd you get those? Yeah. I'm like, in my pack. <laughs> <laughs> Hands off. So I went online and I just ordered four more boxes of them. Because, well, the crew, you know, you're sitting there eating on one of them and you're like, oh man, this is good. So much for these other crappy things that I've been chewing on and breaking teeth for the last 10 years. The crew's looking at me like, you really going to eat that in front of me? And uh, you, you've you seen my pack before where it had been filled with Snicker bars. Mm -hmm. so if you have stock and Snicker, sell it because <laughs> Rand, Randy's moving on from Snicker bars. I, I no, I. So what, what flavor is your favorite? Oh, what's the blue and white one? It's like uh, caramel. Conquer caramel. Yep. Is that what it is? That's my okay. favorite. They were sold out. They sold out of those like in August, all yeah. through September. They were sold out. And Casey sent me a text over the weekend and said, hey, we have more caramel in stock. I jumped online and ordered four boxes of just the caramel ones because those are my favorite. And I've been they've been withheld from me for like two months now. So hmm. got that. They have the what is it? The triple chocolate bliss mudslide or oh, something. Yeah. And then uh, the peanut butter. Yeah, they're all, they're all good. good, but I I would say in my order of four, I ordered one of each, and I doubled down on the blue and white caramel, whatever <laughs> that is. So, yep. you, so you just, if, if you're list, if people are listening, we do have a promo code with Mountain Ops also, and they can use it. And I don't know what it kind of changes what the what the incentive is there. I know it's always free shipping. Um, but then this is October. They do they do a promo called Opstober, like Mountain Opstober, mm -hmm. and they give away a pile of stuff. They're giving away like a razor and all sorts of hunting gear, and I forget really? like it's one in three people win something, and they have all sorts of incentives. So if you're wanting wow. to try out the bars, now's the time to to place the order. Yeah, I, I won something. So, full disclosure, <laughs> folks, I went online. I paid full retail here. And uh, it said, oh, you're a winner. This is going to be in your cart. I, I don't know what it was. It was free. I, I thought it was like some sort of gadget. So, you're saying you, it might actually be something. Yeah. 
No, they they give away all sorts of, and it might be a, you know, a free hat or a free sampler pack or something. But yeah, they hmm. they give away a pile of stuff in October. You you so, at least used promo code, didn't you? No, I didn't. We stress promo were- code so much, and you jump on Mountain Ops, and you didn't even use our own promo code. Well, I was thinking it would seem chintzy to go in there and ask for a discount. <laughs> <laughs> on my own promo code. So I'm like, you know what? I'll pay full boat. I, But I guess in retrospect, I should have used it because then they can track that that sale came from us. But I was going to say, so. it might have been the only sale we got. You, you might have been the only one <laughs> that heard the promo code. Oh, well, I thought about it, but I thought they'd look at the order and say, look at Newberg. What a tight wad. He, he, <laughs> he wants a discount based on his own promo code. Gee. So I didn't use it, but yeah, they're they're really good. I I usually am not big on that, you know, promoting that kind of stuff. But in this case, I can assure you that if you try them, you're going to throw away your Snicker bar, your Baby Ruth, or your Milky Way, or whatever other sort of bad influence you carry around in your pack. I was impressed. Yeah. No, and I, I still carry a little fun-sized Snickers bar. That's my celebration Snickers for – it used to be any time we're successful. Now I celebrate, like, if we make it to the top of the mountain or if we make it back to camp safely. I eat one a day, one of those little fun-sized ones. But I did talk to Casey and said, you know, if you come out with fun-sized little performance bars, Ooh. I wouldn't have any reason to carry a Snickers in my pack at all. So yeah, trick we'll or treat. if you listen to me. All right, so another thing in Wyoming, we're up at 10,000 feet. I have one of these jet boil operations. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the jet boil, the one where the striker goes out the third time you hit the striker? <laughs> yeah, so you got to carry two big lighters and a, and a Zippo with you just to get it to light. Yeah. Well, we're up at the mountain. It's blowing like crazy. My jobby keeps, the flame keeps going out. And our buddy Bo Beatty, he's got one of these MSR, it's called the wind burner. Mm-hmm. He lights it up, and the, the wind didn't even phase that thing. So really? I was down at, <laughs> I bought myself a an MSR wind burner the other day. It's like, you know what? <laughs> Cold mountain house, just don't cut it. Nope. So I, uh, huh. that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm coming up with all kinds of upgrades this year of just little things that I I don't know. You, you know, just in full disclosure, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, you know, pyro putty and the MSR wind burner, we're not affiliated in any way. This, no, this is I, not a, a no, I don't promotional plug or anything. This is the gear no. that we go down and buy at full price and yeah. use. Yeah, I... The only thing I'd say is go buy it at the Go Hunt gear shop if they have it and use promo code Elk Talk, and hopefully they'll give you a discount if you do that. <laughs> They've been pretty good about honoring the, the promoted discounts. So, yeah. Yeah. So, no, I was I was surprised. I, I did not realize that there was stove, the worst stoves out there that would burn in that kind of wind. Yeah. Now... The thing I got to do is go find some of that high altitude fuel. I've spent yep. the last three days running around Bozeman looking for a high altitude fuel mix because the regular fuel mix 
was struggling at 10,000 feet in Wyoming, I can't imagine what it's going to do at 11.5 in Colorado. Yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there holding my Zippo underneath my new MSR burner because my fuel <laughs> won't come out. I was going to say you'll be holding your Zippo underneath your titanium pot to try to get your water mm-hmm. to boil. Yeah, probably. Well, then uh, one one night it got really cold, and so I actually slept with my fuel canister in my sleeping bag that night, and because uh, it wouldn't come out next morning, at least I had enough to. Took about thirty minutes for it to boil enough for some granola and blueberries, but so I don't know. People are probably like Newberg, you knucklehead. We already knew that. You're the <laughs> stupid idiot who didn't know that. So, <laughs> probably true. So, uh, but now you know, and anybody that didn't know learned from your uh, mm-hmm. your learning. Yep, I went with a prototype sleeping bag on one trip. That was Ooh. not. The results of that weren't that favorable. Uh, yeah, I, I'm done with prototypes. I guess is my yeah. point. Can companies you talk about that us, one? No, no. So companies send us this stuff, right? And they're like, "Will you try this? Will you try this?" Well, I'm getting to the point in my life where I need sleep at night. All right. Yeah. We hike in ten miles. I need at least one hour of sleep for every hour of hiking. And I was sitting in there. I was shivering like a dog pooping peach pits, man. I was, <laughs> I was not doing well. And so I got hardly any sleep. And I'm thinking to myself, Randy, you've been doing this for how long now? How many years have you been camping in the backcountry? And what do you do? You decide to start experimenting with new gear in the core of your hunting season? You go do that in July to see what works. So, uh, no, yeah. and I'm a I'm a very finicky sleeper because I get cold so easy, and uh, I've had good high end sleeping bags, you know, zero minus thirty degree sleeping bags, and yeah. uh, I picked up one of the Stone Glacier. I remember the what the brand or the model of it is, but it's their zero degree bag, mm-hmm. hands down the warmest sleeping bag. It's perfect for me. I don't get really? I don't get too hot, but I've never got cold in it. And I've used it in some. Well, I used it in Montana last year when we huh. hunted with you over there, and it was down in the single digits and teens. And yeah. so, and it only weighs it's like a sub two pound sleeping bag. It's super light, super compact, and super warm. So that's been my go to mm-hmm. sleeping bag. Well, that's a that's a really good deal then. Yeah. It'll keep you warm. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't get cold that easy. I mean, I I've got it dialed in where I can almost sleep in a snowbank with nothing but a <clears throat> a tinfoil wrap. But I was cold, <laughs> and uh, so I uh, I think the time has come for me to say, call that company and say, hey guys, it's great, but we got some work to do here. So, yeah. what do you use for a sleeping pad? I've got a Thermarest. It's their Neo Air X something another. Yeah. I got the same thing. It squeaks every time you roll. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the insulated one, and it's actually louder. Uh, I have the insulated and the non-insulated, and the insulated one's louder than the non-insulated, so I I haven't slept with it. My wife got us. I got her a sleeping bag for backpacking, 
and it has mm-hmm. a sleeve in it that you actually slide the the uh, sleeping pad into. So as you're rolling around at night, you don't roll off right. of it or anything. It stays right in place there. Super Whoa. slick. Now you're talking. Yeah. I never thought about that. Another company, to remain nameless, sent me a, a sleeping pad that, how many nights you suppose it stayed inflated before it, the seal broke on it? <laughs> I'm guessing if the seal broke, it probably broke the first night. Second night. Wow. Like, hmm. Good thing this Idaho dirt is so soft. Man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't so. I don't use hunting season to try out new gear like you said. I, I'll do it during the summer and when I'm going one night. That way I'm not prolonging my misery if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I'm I'm done with that. I'm I'm back to the to the old reliable stuff from here on out the rest of the season. Um, yeah. I just I I didn't realize how much sleep I needed anymore. I it, for me as I've gotten older, it's all about pace. Like I'm trying to follow these 30 year old guys up the hill. And they have this idea that, all right, let's just run as fast as we can until we're out of oxygen and out of blood supply, and then let's stop and rest. I can't do that. I just, like, <laughs> plod along. You know, I'm I'm like, when you go see your grandparents at the, the nursing home or the assisted living, and there's the one guy kind of shuffling his feet down the hallway, that's kind of me. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get there. Just don't be in a hurry. I'm going to get there. As quick as I get beyond what my comfortable pace is, it just eats me up. And if I don't get enough sleep at night, I'm just not worth a damn the next day. Man. So, yeah. First world problem, I know. Yeah, no kidding. So, But point of that is, people are always like, Newberry, I can't believe you carry that two-man tent all the way up this mountain. Well, guess who sleeps the best? Not the dude in the one-man tent me yep so i did I, just get a new tent last year too and it's absolutely that exact it's a tube man i actually had a three person i didn't realize it was a three person all these years i've been telling people it's a two-person tent super spacious and i yeah. couldn't figure out i weighed it and i'm looking at the specs online i'm going they, they lie about their weights and i actually gave it to my son isaac to use when i got my new one and he's actually reading the labels on it. He's like, Dad, this is a three-person tent. And so I looked up, <laughs> sure enough, the specs do match the three-person weight. But uh, oh, I went to a two-person, so I shaved off like 12 ounces, and mm-hmm. it's still got plenty of room. And it's got two vestibules, so I've got room for boots on one side, and I can put a, you know, my pack on the other and still use all the room inside to sleep. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for comfort. You know, you just... When when you're hunting hard and you're in the backcountry, do a little more to be as comfortable as you can. Or at yeah. least when you start getting a little bit longer in the tooth and grayer in the hair, think about that. Just just trust me on that one, folks. <laughs> you're you're going to be thankful for the small amount of comfort or the large amount of comfort for the small amount of extra weight and space. Yeah. And that's where llamas come in. You know what? Those llamas, they don't care if I have my one-man tent or my two-man tent because we're talking about 12, 14-ounce difference. Yeah, that that just doesn't make a difference on a llama. So 
And I'm, okay. I'm both excited and nervous at the same time because we're going to take llamas in on our rifle hunt this year. You are. You guys we are Bo into it? Well, Bo talked me into it. And really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to talk you into going because you have experience with llamas, and that would ease mm-hmm. some of my nervousness. But I am excited to, to take them yeah. in and let them pack the elk out for us, even if yeah. we have to pack all of our gear. Um It'll still yeah. save us trips and how many are you bring I think four. Ooh, and you're gonna shoot two elk? Yeah. But it's it's not a bad trail in and out. And so I think we'll be able to shuttle um if we get one, we'll, we'll somebody'll just shuttle it up, you know, use oh. all four llamas and shuttle it up and then come back in. Gotcha. If we shoot two at the same time, you know, we'll do the same thing. We'll, we'll, we're planning on taking two trips out. Yeah. So. Well, if you want to rent llamas, you better give it the program, folks. Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas, because I was there five days ago dropping my llamas off after the Wyoming trip. And things are pretty busy there. Uh, it, with COVID, a lot of people, uh, I was asking Bo about this. He said, well, a lot of people just didn't know if they're going to be able to hunt, so they didn't make llama reservations. And now they're all deciding, I'm going, heck with it. And they're calling at the last minute, hey, I want llamas. And he's like, hmm, here's what I got. Yeah. But uh, one other thing, I just got an email from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And uh, they awarded $2.1 million to habitat conservation just in Arizona. Wow. So, yeah. You don't hear a lot about Arizona with their efforts. So that's, yeah. I mean, I know they're there, but you just don't hear about it. And mm-hmm. so that's cool. To, that's a big, that's a big yeah. allotment. Yeah. So uh, here's what it says in the. In the email, it says RMEF granted directly 234000 and leveraged an additional $1.8 million of conservation funding from agencies, i.e. Forest Service and BLM, probably. Uh, these projects will benefit 19,800 acres of habitat. And then it goes on to list the stats in Arizona. 6,600 RMEF members in Arizona. Their most profitable chapter in the entire RMEF network is Tucson. I know. Uh, Every I, year I they're know. the ones that pull, yeah. the, pull the plug on all those poppers at the <laughs> convention. Yeah. It gets really loud <laughs> and they're a rambunctious group of people. Yeah. Since inception... In Arizona, RMEF RMEF has done 504 conservation projects with a combined value of 35.1 million, enhanced 430,000 acres of habitat, and improved access to 21,500 acres. Wow. Yeah. And I know there's another email out there. I couldn't find it, but uh, they just did a big project in Arizona in uh, elk hunting unit 4A with a landowner that uh, it it really made a big difference in, in the access project there. Um, hmm. It's a 65,000-acre ranch that also has access to way more than that of uh, public land. And so they worked with that landowner to keep it open to public hunting and to it. So Arizona Game and Fish has this thing 
called, I think it's called the adopt a ranch program. And so you go out there and all the volunteers come and help with, you know, work and fences and cleaning up. And because unfortunately there's always still some people who are going to litter or do stupid things. Uh, and so this rancher, uh, I've been there twice. We've filmed two antelope hunts on this property that's enrolled in that program. And it's open to public access. Uh, You got a sign-in box and everything. But the amount of uh, public land beyond that that it provides access to and amount of state land within the ranch that it provides access to is amazing. And so... RMEF, a whole bunch of other groups, not just RMEF, but a lot of other groups, all these partners get together and they went out there and, and worked on this ranch. Uh, it's really a cool program. Um, uh, just another thing that RMEF is, is a part of that makes a difference for access, for conservation with all that stuff. So the unfortunate yep. part is I don't have an Arizona elk tag this year. <laughs> I don't. I'm uh I'm getting close. I'm yeah. uh I, I can taste it. Yeah, I just I'm I haven't nailed down what unit I want to apply for yet. So that's yeah. kind of holding me back a little. There's definitely a handful I could draw and there's a mm-hmm. handful that are within a, a couple of years of being able to draw. So within the next couple of years I think I'll be hunting Arizona. I'm uh I'll definitely be hunting Colorado. I've got 17 points there or something for deer and elk and mm. so i'm going to be spending those in the near future and wyoming wow. hopefully we're uh, able to go back to wyoming next year and i might get the coordinates from you for that place that's mm-hmm. 11 miles back in and yeah that's not like a good well, place to be uh i'm i don't I, I don't know that i need an elk that bad 11 miles back in but I just, I'm envisioning llamas carrying it out. So I can walk 11 miles if I don't have to carry an elk. Yeah. yeah. No, but the bad part was the last three miles, you can't get llamas to them. And it's some of the most miserable, godforsaken terrain in all of North America. <laughs> That's why the elk were in there. But, I was going to say, and the elk weren't down at that three mile mark where you had no. to go up into the nasty stuff. No, they, they didn't get the memo. But, uh, so there's, uh, there's definitely reasons for elk being where they are. And in that case, they were in the right place for the right reason. And, uh, I don't know, someday when I get energetic again and lick my wounds and heal up, I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going back in there. Um, but right now I think, I think common sense you know, there's one good thing about being six weeks into the season. Common sense has returned to my <laughs> process again. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, we're, we're definitely slow learners, but we do learn every year. Yeah. I, we learn I, the same I, lessons every year. Yeah, I'm the slowest of all learners. My wife is sitting over there at the coffee table looking at me, nodding her head like, yep, why won't you admit that to me? <laughs> uh, she just heard me make a confession now i'm i've busted myself but so what else we got Corey? i don't know i'm uh i'm excited for the next few weeks we've got the yeah. outfitters for elk hunt we've got hunt all three of my kiddos still have their elk tag and then mm-hmm. donnie and i are going the last week of october so getting in a little more uh rifle hunting this year than normal wow 
that's a, I, I'm worried about you now. Yeah. Well, you know. I, I I'm I'm rifle from here on out, man. I I gotta fill I I gotta fill a tag and get some meat in the freezer. So I'm I'm here to admit, you know what? When it comes to having complete childish adolescent style fun, that's when I get my bow out. But when it's it's the reckoning, it's like freezer filling. I'm breaking out the rifle. <laughs> so, and I'm just looking me. forward to a, a different. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's nothing like bugling and, and calling elk. But right. if we can incorporate a little bit of bugling and calling and and a little different style, I mean, it's going to be where we're going steep and pretty rugged. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there'll be some sitting up there. And if it's cold enough, maybe building a little fire and glassing. And yeah. we're uh, going back in, you know, so we got to we got to bring camp with us and kind of a remote little camp. So... I can't believe it. I've I've convinced Corey Jacobson that there is some redeeming value in hunting sanctuaries in the post-rut period. I'm convinced. Never never thought I'd get you there. Yeah, I think I killed nine grouse in September this year, too. I saw that. Holy smokes. You you better watch it. You'll be like me someday. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I'm going to Colorado. And then I'm going to New Mexico uh, the next, the following week. Uh, we have a sweepstakes winner. Now, can I plug the sweepstakes we got Absolutely. coming up there pretty soon? Yeah. So RMEF every year does a membership drive with me that is uh, sweepstakes. You get to win a hunt. We go on an elk hunt. So be on the lookout in early November. They'll be promoting that. And uh, some lucky winner gets his huge prize package. And gets to go on an elk hunt with us. So Very cool. I really hope that we have a great hunt for that person because, uh, you know, when you, when you get a new person and you, you want to show them a great time, you hope that's the hunt of the year where everything falls in place. So, yeah, no, and we does. just actually got back last week from our uh, hunt winner hunt. And not only do you want a good hunt for the winner, you want a good winner for the hunt. Yeah, <laughs> man, we we've been very fortunate, but this year was just uh, the hunt winner. His name's Lewis. He started working out literally the day that that he found out he won, and wow. he was in better shape than any of us. He uh, he said, "I don't ever want to come on an experience like this." and not be successful because of my physical conditioning. He chipped cool. in. He, he brought dinner one night. He brought breakfast one of the mornings. <laughs> Literally within five minutes of being there, it was just like he was part of our hunting group, and we had a oh, ton of fun. We uh, I don't want to spoil everything, but we, we filled two tags there. And if you remember last year in Destination Elk, in, in our video series on YouTube, we had the hissing bull, that bull that came into six mm-hmm. yards or whatever and laid his head back and hissed at me. Uh, that was kind of our capstone moment of, of the season. We had one of those moments, not a not a hissing bull, but we had a, a capstone moment on this hunt that you've just got to, you're going to have to see to believe. All right. Spoiler alert. Be there. Yep. Watch it. <laughs> on, on your on your YouTube channel, right? Yep, and we're we're still a ways from it coming out, but we'll definitely have more details in the near future. So, 
Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll cover those, I guess. And maybe in the next episode. Yeah. I, I, it'll be interesting to get the report. So I'm going to two different states than you are. You're going Idaho on both, both of these that are coming up. Yeah. We'll, we'll be in Idaho the rest of October. All right. I'll be in Colorado and New Mexico. I hope that it's nice weather. I know people say, oh, I wish we'd get some snow. I've slept in enough snow. I don't want any snow. <laughs> I hope it's highs in the upper 60s, lows in the 30s every night. That'd be just fine for me. <laughs> uh, you sound like you're getting soft. I am. I fully am, Corey. There is no doubt about it. I'm getting, I'm softer than one of those little uh, hostess snowball things, the, the <laughs> coconut, white coconut covered snowballs that are chocolate on the inside. That's me. Uh, yeah. I'm like the Pillsbury Doughboy, man. I am that soft. But, okay. So, with that, should we let him go? Yeah, I think. All right. It's good I to you. I appreciate it. I can't believe people listen to us. You know, I don't know that they do listen. They might just have us playing in the background. It's kind of that audio thing that they play it on their play it on their mobile device in their tent as they're trying to fall asleep, just to drown out all the elk bugling outside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I should just bring a a downloaded elk bugling melody on my phone and then I could lay in my tent and listen to that and then I could say man I heard elk bugling from my tent but <laughs> no well I'll send you pictures if I got anything big from uh, from Colorado Likewise. even if I got anything small I was going to say pictures, it, pictures. It, it is any legal bull which means it's got to have uh, can, did you know that in Colorado that you have to attach your carcass tag. You can't attach it to the antlers. You got to attach it to the meat. Yeah, it's the same in uh, Idaho, and same in Utah. Really? Yep. So I'm just reading all the fine print here. I'm like, whoa. You know, in some states I attach it to the antler, but in uh, in Colorado it specifically says shall be attached to the carcass. So when I cut up the carcass, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but uh, I, I better better get it done right. Yep. And no, then Idaho, also, Idaho specifically says it shall be attached to the largest portion of meat. So I always put it on the, mm-hmm. the hind quarter. Okay, good to know. Yeah. I, I just you know every year I get the regs and I read through them and it's sometimes it pops out to me like have I been doing that right <laughs> hmm. yeah I mean when you're doing it on video content you want to do it right yeah you want to do it right no matter what but, but I think sometimes we hunt our own home state that might not have a specific regulation about say where you got to attach a tag and then you go hunt another state where it's like hey you got to be here doing it this way according to our rules it's like oh all right i'm paying attention now (laughs) so and then also i can shoot any legal bull which i'm like oh any legal bull to me that's like any bull well i go read the regulations (laughs) it's like no it must have either four tines on one antler or at least a five inch brow tine 
in the lower and it shows what a brow tine is. It's got to be at least five inches. Every state's got a different definition of what a legal bull is also. Yep. Point of that being, if you travel to hunt a lot, check out all those little things. Again, it's like like we've talked about with trying to navigate the applications for each state. Once you make mm-hmm. it through that and get a tag, then you've got to navigate the regulations because they are different from state to state. Yeah. And speaking of which, if you want tags, I would go to the GoHunt.com website and I'd sign up for the Insider and use promo code ElkTalk because there it's still got all these amazing tools. It's got the filtering 2.0. It's got all the draw odds. It's got all the analysis. It's got the strategy articles. And now you get 3D maps on your desktop soon I, I, you notice how they, uh, a lot of people are like, hey, they postponed the mobile app of 3D maps until after hunting season. I, I've talked to them. They're like, yeah, we have high standards. And if we're not meeting every one of those standards, we're going to defer it. So yep. after hunting season, you'll be able to get uh, your uh, mobile 3D maps once they release that. So, Which is just so incredibly helpful in the field. That's... I can't tell you how how reliant I am now on my mobile device and mm-hmm. the app out in the field. It's, yeah. man. And then to put it into 3D, it's just, it takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah. And like I said on prior podcasts, I'm here admitting sheepishly that I underestimated how much benefit I'd get out of 3D. Yep. So I'm I'm still one of those guys who for some reason I'm holding on to all my old BLM paper maps <laughs> thinking that well I spent a small fortune I've got four file cabinets full of these I'm not throwing them out. Yep. I am not getting rid of these. And my wife will say uh, do you need these four file cabinets full of maps? I'm like well what do you think I'm going to use for wallpaper someday? These maps. Ooh. I got some BS story about why I got to keep them, but yeah, I'm I'm tethered to to my my online uh, maps and my my mobile kind of device for all this kind of stuff anymore. So, yep. all right, enough of okay. that. Let's yep. let's go. Yeah, let's go and hunt. Go, yeah, go kill an elk, Corey. I'm- well, I have to I'm wait well until I do, but we're gonna we're gonna right. pack elk and we're gonna call elk and we're gonna be right. involved in in some elk hunting. Well, I'm gonna be involved in some hunting. I hope I'm involved in some freezer filling also. That's right. <laughs> I'm getting kind of growly about all this, so we'll make yeah, it we, happen. I, we don't want I Randy to have to survive through the winter on scallops yeah. and seafood. So yeah. I mean, I love my buddy John over at the Wild Alaska Seafood Box, but he's probably tired of me calling him and saying, John, I haven't killed milk yet. You want to send some more fish? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Corey. Thanks for your time, folks. Thanks for listening. Hope everybody's going to have a great season of what's ahead, and uh, we'll report to them when we get out of the woods at the next pass. Yep. And likewise, if uh, if you're having success, we'd love to see that. So just tag us uh, on Instagram. If you're on Instagram, just tag Elk Talk Podcast, and uh, we'd love to see that and share it if if it's uh, if we're able to. Yeah. Well, don't stand by waiting for my pictures based on the results so far. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, awesome. Well, we will catch you on the next one. Thanks, Corey. Yep. Thanks, Randy. <laughs>